Okay. And the sound guys ask for like a moment of silence to uh, calibrate something. So, and then that's to sync up the <clears throat> audio file and the video file, <clears throat> which details I'm learning about. So, where do you put you post this on YouTube as well? I will post it on YouTube. Okay. Yeah. So. Okay. Um. All right. Well then. Uh, I need to turn, don't I? So right. <laughs> right. Have this uh, conversational feel, like pretend like we like each other, sort of thing. Um. Get a little less of my belly there, Reese. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> so here's my chance to. Okay. Okay. All right. Well then. Uh, welcome. <clears throat> no. Take a moment. <laughs> Always the reason, yes. Uh, Welcome to the Outer Circle Inner Stillness, uh, season three. Uh, we are here talking about the integration of sobriety and spirituality and the sober way of life and um, a, lot of the, a lot of the particulars. How do we do sobriety? What does that mean and everything? I am Reese Basimio, heralding from Gresham, Oregon, east of Portland, Oregon. It's an uncommonly beautiful September day on the day we're recording. Who knows the day when you actually hear this, but I hope it's nice for you. Anyway, I'm here with good friend and colleague from up north across the river, Stephen Grant. Hi. Hi, Reese. It's good to see you. Man. It's good to see you too. Uh, thank you for coming back. Uh, I know we we did some... Years ago. Yes. Was that even pre-COVID? That was... Yes, I believe so. I think it was pre-COVID. Or very early COVID. And that was a whole other podcast show ago. So, uh, wow. would you uh, introduce yourself to the listener, and who are you as a wonderful person? Who are you in the counseling world? So, I am. I am. I'm no longer new to counseling. I've been doing this. I got my. I. I've been working as a therapist since 2016, and so what is it? Seven. We're. I'm seven years in. So. Um, I got into counseling to work primarily with ministry professionals that were having a hard time with sex addiction stuff. And you and I both know that in, it's in the news. It seems like every week there's some ministry professional somewhere that's having a hard time. And previous to that, from about 2010 till I went to grad school, I've been working to connect ministry professionals to services. And I got tired of not being able to help them more. So I went back to grad school, um, studied with, uh, I still have one of the greatest minds in, um, at least in modern therapy in terms of woundedness and uh, recovery from woundedness and trauma. A guy by the name of Dan Allender up in Seattle. Um, and I, I think I'm probably one of the few, 
yeah, I'm not one of the few. I think some of us, I am really grateful for the education I received. And I don't think a, a, a lot of therapists really give two hoots about the education that I received, but I am incredibly grateful for that. And it shaped very much who I am and how I practice. So I'm a relational therapist. Um, I am psychodynamic. I have genesis in middle English object relations, which means nothing to anybody. <laughs> but but uh, that's still, I guess, how I perceive a mind works, if you will. Um, and when I say relational... Uh... Yeah, I, I was hoping you might say more about that because I, I often tell my interns and everything, like, uh, like counseling is an inherently relational profession like at baseline, like uh, everything we do is based on relationship. And so to to say relational, uh, what are the, like how extra relational is relational? In grad school, I was, I was going to start to say, I got to, I mean, I went to study with Dan, Dan Ellender, and I, I'm grateful that I studied with Dan. I think I, I can't ever be grateful enough for that. And I think the person that taught me how to sit with people in the therapy room was actually a guy by the name of Roy Barnes, Barnes, who's uh, written and is a thought leader in relational psycho, psychodynamic psychotherapy. And he made us write a paper. And I think every therapist needs to write this paper. And I don't think many of us do. How do you believe that long-term cha change actually occurs? And... If I were writing the paper today, it would be much, I mean, it, and it wasn't a long paper. It had to be under two pages or something like that. So it was succinct and it was, you couldn't just kind of snow, you know, snow your way through it. <laughs> you actually had to say something. And if I were writing it today, I might just say one word and that's love. Um, and, and maybe that sounds cliche, but when I do groups and I, I do... I do two men. I do two men's groups each week. One is for uh, sex addicts that are in recovery, and then I do one for men that are just learning how to do relationships better. And the one thing I say to all of them is, we are wounded in relationship because that's where all of our wounding takes place, right? And so we're really only healed in relationship either. And so I can't think myself into health. I can't change myself, my behavior into health. There has to be an element of relationality in that, or I can't get better. So sometimes I'm the first person that a client gets to encounter who is free or is able to feel an unconditional love from me. I know, and, and it seems really weird that people pay me to love them, but um, that that's when I and when I say that. Uh, we all have to, as therapists, licensed therapists, we have a, a document called an informed consent that we give every every client. And mine says, I'm not very nice, but I will always try to be kind. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and, and, and what I mean from that, my niceness is, or niceness, when I hear niceness, and we have a car dealer that has niceness in their, in, on their license plates and everywhere, niceness is all about fear. Like niceness is I can't do anything to upset you. Hmm. I can't make waves, right? This is it comes from a place of fear of upsetting the apple cart. And kindness comes from, at least as I understand it, comes from a place of how do I love this person well? Mm -hmm. And I'm called to be kind, but I'm never called to be nice. 
because as I understand things, if I'm putting, I think there are two opposites to love. One is indifference, right? And one is fear. Mm-hmm. So, and that goes, and that some of that goes back to my faith tradition, right? So, there's in in my faith tradition, there's a passage in scripture that says, "Perfect love casts fear away," right? Gets rid of fear, yeah. And, and so that's where I come up with that. So those are my. And so I have love in the middle, and then I have two opposites, two polar opposites to it. And so that's when I talk about being a relational therapist. It means that I am unconditionally sitting with someone being present with someone not demanding anything from someone having what martin buber called an i thou encounter and trying to have that i thou encounter with someone mm-hmm. um and to create a space where walls come down and they can experience humanity and love in life-changing ways mm-hmm. yeah that's really beautiful and a I'm, I'm deeply resonating with, with these ideas. I mean, especially these, you know, scriptural ideas, you know, perfect love casts out fear, you know, God is love. And one way we can really understand God is, is, you know, God, the, the, I am the, the ever present filling all things. And so, you know, and we who are made in the image of God, you know, participate in the works of God. So we could say, yes, perfect love casts out fear. And in a very practical way, uh, total presence perfect presence uh, of being with is a zone where the where fear can be cast out uh there's there's risk there and i can understand why people may shy away from that because to to fully be with you to fully be seen and and, and to see you that means like i can't hide and so so i get fully seen which can be uh scary if there's you know flaws or failures or things that i might otherwise try to hide but but it's like you said uh the the reason we feel like we have to hide those things is because they're they're someone else somewhere was not welcoming to those or not open to seeing those healed and so we we encounter these initial judgments these initial bad encounters with relationships and so learn to to hide to, to put on masks to put up our protector parts and this this love this presence becomes its own where we can learn to you know relax all of those and actually actually encounter a person yeah that's exactly that's i think that's that's exactly right that in a sense perfect presence as you described it is the action of love i mean that's that's what love looks like Mm -hmm. there's no demand there is just simply a being with someone in their own reality without judgment yeah and yet without also acceptance of the reality. So <laughs> Right. Yeah. It's that balance of speaking the truth and love that I can be kind to you, want your want your ultimate benefit, but I am not so nice that I can't defend you or challenge you or, or push back on something. No, we have to be able to say to the client and um when they say, why am I doing what I'm doing and be able to say, because you feel like you can get away with it and the rules don't apply to you. Right. Yeah. There's there's a grandiosity that's going on that you're going to have to deal with if you're going to deal with the issues that are going in underneath the surface. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we can say that same thing a hundred different ways. Sometimes at least with the male population, um, I think, a direct statement of that reality that's said in a way that they know 
with love in my eyes that they can see that there's no judgment and there's no, this is just who you've been and how you've been. That resonates. Someone's telling me the truth for the first time in my life. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We need that. We need that. We need that sense of like, there, there, there's another person there, not just, uh, not just a mask, not just platitudes, but someone who's actually willing to take the risk to, to, to be with me, to, to offend me for the sake of, uh, of bettering me, bettering us. Um, and it's part of boundaries and how we set boundaries. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I love that we're, we're, we're talking about this. Uh, so, so I do men's groups as well, and we're doing a, a series on integrity repair. Uh, me and our mutual colleague, Ben Poling, we're, um, we're venturing into this and, uh, we're learning about ways that we lie, ways that we have lied. Uh, hopefully we'll be learning ways to tell the truth, but it's, it's notable the way that uh, one of the main reasons why we would practice deception is is to remain hidden, and it's 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 notable as I am with these guys the the, the fears that come up around exposure, um, and even like like the word choice can matter too because I'm going to say like you know being seen versus being exposed. I mean those words have different connotations, and not all forms of like being seen are are comfortable or or super nourishing, but but it's it's notable the way that we tend to fear connection and that seems to be from what i can say one of the things that impedes our progress um it's those folks who are open to letting themselves be seen letting themselves be known that seem to be able to really let go of things and move through things so yeah yeah i think that there's with that it's not just an interpersonal lie, but it's also an intrapsychic lie that I have to lie to myself or I do choose to lie to myself, both positively and negatively, right? Whether I'm going to go to a contempt of self place of shame or whether I'm going to go to contempt of other place of grandiosity, there are lies about, I, I think many of the people we work with have no clue who they are, right? Because they've been lying to themselves for so long and you and I both work from a model of our psyche or our soul being made up of parts. <laughs> um, and when one part's lying to another part, that's causing part of the problem. There's a lot of word part in that, but <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, so it's not, and, and then what comes out feels like the truth to the addict, but only because it's been a lie to themselves. So they're repeating a lie that they've been telling internally to the external world and it feels authentic to them, but it's really not. Does that make sense? I think it does. I heard a, I heard it expressed really brilliantly by uh, Dr. Philip Mamalakis in a, in a recent seminar when he was talking about, <clears throat> uh, we were talking about um, creating different patterns of life. And he was, he said something along the lines of uh, a new pattern or, or new habit will always feel inauthentic because it's unfamiliar. Uh, you know, you're as you know, you're literally carving out a new set of neural pathways. You're, you're changing the physical landscape of your brain when you think a different way, when you start a different habit, and that's always going to feel like it's not your true self because it's 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 new. The the, the familiar is always going to feel more authentic because it's familiar. And so these really unhealthy habits we get into, um, 
they they can feel like our true selves just because we've been like these lies you're talking about that we tell ourselves they they can feel like the truth just because that's the established pattern of thinking that i have in my brain and um and it's not actually me it's just the most familiar thing yeah exactly it's it's the lies we tell ourselves kind of thing is becomes our reality and i guess one of the things you know so in my practice when you the first thing uh, it 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 fluctuates a bit but ideally right my practice is working 30 percent with addicts 30 percent with their partners 30 percent with both of them as couples and then 10 percent don't fit any of those categories right that's just kind of and that fluctuates so like right now i'm run, probably running 40 20 30 mm-hmm. right <laughs> um but so so much of the time when i'm working with a partner it feels like to the partner the addict can't tell the truth and yet the addict is telling the truth as they know it <laughs> you know and it's and that's a hard balance to have because growth has to happen i mean this is a process of learning how not to be a liar and so when you're in my sex addiction group when we do check-ins at the beginning of the group all the guys introduce themselves like they would in a 12-step meeting uh you know my name is steve steven i'm a, a sex addict and my bottom lines which are the behaviors that if i do these again i'm going to change my sobriety date are blank 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 and blank um many of my guys have added lying to that inner circle to that 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 place of if i do this i'm changing my sobriety date because they're aware that this is such an issue i mean the the dishonesty to self and to others is really a core issue in their own recovery that seems like a really good practice to really recognize the the impact that that our words have and and i'm here and there too uh, um, moving beyond behaviors to, to to mindset and something about that feels uh even a little bit more solid than than fantasy uh i mean i have a lot of guys who once they stop the behaviors they quickly become aware of when they're fantasizing objectifying <clears throat> and that's a really good thing to do um but that always has felt like a little bit like hard to define uh when like, like I know when I'm in, in, in fantasy, I know when I'm in objectification mode, um, but it's, it's, it's a little bit hard to measure, but I can, de- I can more easily measure, oh, here was where I lied, or here was where I withheld truth, or here's where I distorted things. So yeah, that feels like a really great practice. So uh, that's I think, the heart of that, what we were just talking about. I think that's where we go with that. Yeah. Uh, so talking about recovery, I would love to hear more thoughts from you about this longer term recovery process um you know we <clears throat> we we classically put a lot of attention on here's like the first you know 30 days 90 days you know two years you know five years of you know here's the active work i'm doing to change my behaviors get abstinent repair do repair work with it with a partner and then a lot of those processes are just going to be ongoing um but then uh at some point you know some people breach that time mark in and get into the well now i've been sober like 8 10 12 20 25 30 years and i wonder you think I, it takes that long well i think it hits about a year and a half okay okay yeah yeah well i mean say say more about that uh yeah 
if your only goal in recovery is to stop behaviors, you will never fully learn how to live. That's, (laughs) you know, and, and I think some people, when they come to me, right, their goal is I have to stop these behaviors because they're destroying my life. And they stop the behaviors and then they leave and they continue to destroy their life because the underlying patterns that are there in their life haven't been, the underlying motives in their life haven't been changed. When I was, when I was in my recovery process, I was challenged and I was doing in initially 90 meetings in 90 days, which is something we talk about just so you know what that means. It means that every day you're going to a meeting for 90 days. And in my world, because my sponsor gave me grace, if I missed a day, then one day I do two meetings. So by the end, by the time I get to 90 days, I've done 90 meetings. And for me, it ended up being 270 and 270. So I went, it was, it was a long, and I still didn't get sober in 270 and 270, just so you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the whole point of that was my i thought that my if i could just change this behavior just stop when i couldn't right i'm one of those people it took me a year and a half to get sober right i did rehab i did <laughs> i did it all um just to change the behaviors But after I change the behaviors, what does it take to begin to live? And after I'm learning what does it take to live, it's what does it take to love? Mm. Because I don't think I can love until I've learned to live. Um, And I think that's why when a couple's coming to to me, I'm going to say it's a three to five year process to really to build this place so that you're on a firm foundation so you can continue to move into depth in your relationship. and I really believe that's true because there's just so much unpacking of every addict I know has orchestrated most of their life around staying in their addiction and not getting caught, right? They organize their life around that. They may think they organize their life around work, um, but they work so that they can have their addiction. At least that's the argument I would make. Um, they may say that they're, you know, it's God and family and then work, but really in terms of how they're putting life together, it's really a very self-centered, I'm organizing life the way I understand life is to work, is how can I do what I want to do the way I want to do it, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, in in the secrecy of that complete double life. Mm-hmm. And then moving on from that to... Everything else is second. Their primary loyalty, if you will, in life is to themselves, right? And to their addiction, um, to getting what they 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 crave, what yeah. they need to live. And I'm thinking about how the good Lord says, you know, you, you know, no one can serve two masters. And it sounds like we might try to hold this like lie in our head of like, I can be loyal to all of these things. But like your your experience, your observation is that functionally, there really is only one organizing principle. And if that's not something like like God or like family. It will be, uh, what do I want in the moment? And 
and that's going to be, I, I am going to say, Reese, that's different for different people because if I'm a single guy in recovery, I just need to learn how to live, right? I just need to learn what it means to be authentically live, who I've been made to be and how to live into who I am and who God wants me to be. Uh, however you conceive that in your own faith tradition, uh, who I was created to be, you know, the best possible version of myself for this world. If you want to come at it from a completely humanistic standpoint, I, I don't care how you get there, right? Just um, if you're single, that's that's the end story. But if you're in a relationship and you're married, it's not just merely about that now. And this goes back to, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Terry Real. And his last book, which came out what, a year and a half ago, Us, um, was about, in a marriage, we need to make it come back to a place that's it's no longer you and me, and the organizing principle can't be myself, the individualistic myself, but it has to be a you and me as an us, um, and to to build life around what it means to be an us, rather than just a you as an individual and me as an individual coming together. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the marriage vows of the christian church historically it's uh become one flesh right it's that's that whole idea Mm -hmm. um and again for me and i again this is a dan allenderism um if your primary loyalty is to anything other than your spouse your marriage will ultimately fail Mm -hmm. (laughs) so and that and and that can mean and and that shows up in a lot of different ways my primary loyalty could be to my family of origin my my primary loyalty was to my addiction, right? So um, your primary addiction could be if uh, to your kids. Um, and so when I married Paula, we each wrote loyalty statements. And so I had a fifth, my, my daughter and son were 15 and 17 at the time that I married Paula. And we talked about it before we got there, but I had a loyalty statement in our wedding ceremony that I basically addressed the kids. And I said, for the last, for the last, I don't know how many years it was, <laughs> but for the last, for most of your lives, you have been my primary loyalty. That's all you have ever known. And that's what it needed to be as I was your father. Mm-hmm. But from this moment on, you need to know that shifting. And Paul is going to be my primary loyalty. Yeah. And they needed to hear, I mean, that's hard for people, right? But that's, if your spouse is not your primary loyalty and your kids are, you're going to have trouble within your relationship again. Yeah, uh, that makes a lot of sense, and uh, and, I'm, and I'm hearing that through the language of I mean there I mean there's all sorts of attachment science going on, but the the sense of uh, having having a singular point of focus, like if I if I have a point of focus, if I have uh, some uh, a, a purpose, I can I can organize my life around that, and and yeah, the what that the nature of what that object of focus is will change the process of being focused on it. So yeah, if, if I'm focused on my addiction or acting out or, or my secrecy, that's going to reverse engineer and shape my life a particular way versus if I'm focused on a person, uh, a spouse, uh, that will shape my life in a lot of different ways. So when we go back to your question that you're asking about what does it look like and where are we going, when you and I begin working with an addict, we're we're starting to work... I mean, our first step is let's help this this person get sober, right? It's stop the behaviors, you know, just, you know, just 
it's it's just stop. <laughs> it's and I know you can't stop by yourself, but we will put tools in place and put people around you and create a system that although you can't stop by yourself with the help of the community and with your higher power, mm-hmm. you will be able to stop the behaviors. And once we get and like I said, for me and my story, it took over a year for that to happen. Right. Um, and there were some other factors as far as med control with me and uh, even my own view of God was getting in the way of me getting sober but that's step one or phase one if you will and phase one can go i mean i it's going to go at least a year you know just trying to get to a place where you've got at least a year clean at least when you get past that then all of a sudden you're getting to a place of okay how do i rebuild my life to learn how to live as a human being and developmentally and again depending on how you view this for many of our addicts they were stunted somewhere anywhere from age six or seven till age 15 Mm -hmm. and they're stuck in that developmental stage and they've never learned how to come out of that developmental stage because they got stuck there Mm -hmm. and so learning to live might is rebuilding all those developmental stages so they can learn how to be fully human and fully adult Mm -hmm. And then from, and that stage can last any number of months or years, depending on how the person's working and what they're doing and mm-hmm. all that sorts of stuff. And then when you've gotten through that, and, and these aren't necessarily silos, you pass, go to this silo and then you go to the next one. But the if you're going to really level up, then it is, how do I be a, a loving partner or how do I, how am I? how do I connect with others in the world? <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I, I'm appreciating this. So, so, so my major original question was like along the lines of like, how does one shift from like early recovery into like, like later recovery? And, uh, and you're saying, you know, the, the initial phase is, you know, how do I, how do I stop? How do I get my life, you know, in some semblance of order, but it sounds like pretty quickly it, it shifts to like, I need to start learning how to live. Uh, once I've taken this problematic thing out, I really need to be putting something back in there. Absolutely. And that's the purpose. That's the thing I'm going to live for. And, and that at some point transitions into like, how am I going to love? How will I, how will I connect? How will I be with people? Um, with, uh, cause I'm in complete agreement there. Um, one of the challenges that I observe is for, for folks who, uh, you know, say don't have a tradition, they don't have core relationships, they didn't have role models. Uh, you know, we're talking about, uh, you know, quit your addiction and devote yourself to some higher purpose or something, some other organizing principle. If a person doesn't have that, you know, doesn't have any sense of here's something valuable or here's a long-term vision or here's a tradition or, or that, and they sort of have to like, create that for themselves or conjure that um i notice that tends to be difficult for people and i wonder if you've encountered that or how you would advise them i think there's lots of different facets to that um there's so many directions i, I want to go to answer that and it's there's a pretty controversial character I guess is kind of attached to our field of psych. It's Jordan Peterson, if you know that name. Um, and he's pretty controversial, and some people hate him, and some people love him. 
But one of the things he says, which I think is true, is that a starting point for purpose is I need to be a little bit better tomorrow than I was today. So, for instance, I have an addict that I'm working with right now who has a hard time even brushing his teeth. Self-care is not really high on his list of priorities. And, you know, he's, he's having a hard time, right? And it's, so the starting point for him is, can you try to brush your teeth every day for this week? Well, if you can do it, then I'm going to say, can you try to brush your teeth twice? (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, literally every little step, if I can be better tomorrow than I was today, Mm -hmm. then I'm going along. Uh, That's a starting point of purpose, right? And purpose then can evolve, if you will. It's completely unseen, but at some point you get to a place in my life, what does a little bit better look like? (laughs) <laughs> because you may not know, right? You may have gotten to the point that as far as you know, you're doing everything you want to do to make life work. Well, what's the point of that, mm-hmm. right? And that's the next question, right? And so what's the next right thing? What's the next? And and that's a way to kind of unfold purpose without sitting down and writing a life mission statement and a life purpose statement, all that kind of stuff, which you may not be able to do, right? Mm-hmm. And so I really, I mean, I don't care what someone thinks about Peterson at that point. I think on this point, he's really, I think he's hit something that is. Yes. You take little breadcrumb sized chunks of life. Like, yeah, maybe figuring out what's my overarching existential reason for living. Maybe that's too big, but something like, can I at least you know, brush my teeth in the morning? Can I at least make my bed? Uh, you know, can I, or can I at least go to bed by midnight? Yeah. Yeah. Can I do the dishes in the sink every day before I go to bed? Yeah. Can I? Yeah. And we're we're rattling off this list of things, but but, real, but realistically, I mean, you know, pick one. Yeah. You know, work on that until it's familiar, and and go from there. Uh, and I'm thinking too. I mean, in 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 Orthodox Christian practice, I mean, the the, the prayer rule is is really central to, to what we do. But we're we're often taught when when we're first learning that we're we're often taught like do like you know a five minute prayer you know you know, plan for, you know, five minutes a day, no more than that. Or they'll say, um, well, you know, there's first the, the, the Trisagian prayers. It's, you know, a, a very short couple paragraphs, like fits in half a page, uh, half a page in a small four by six book. Uh, they say, do that or, or just, just, just do the, our father a couple times a day. And like, uh, and then don't worry about doing more than that. And, and the idea is like, do something very, very small that you can for sure succeed at that's that's meaningful and you, and you do it you do it well you do it mindfully but but it's it's that initial like can i get a breadcrumb of success going uh that can become that initial organizing principle and sometimes it's not possible to do the thing that you need to do yeah right it's too big for you so a couple of different and Britt frank talks about this in the science of stuck um again a book worth picking up because she's lived an addict's life and she's it's worth looking at uh in my life it looked like this my sponsor was trying to get me to pray on my knees and when you're in recovery when you say pray on your knees for for him in terms of he was asking get on your knees do the serenity prayer do the third step prayer do the seventh step prayer do the eleventh step prayer whichever ones of those you can do and then whatever else you want to do but pr- try praying on your knees mm-hmm. 
this good Baptist boy <laughs> uh, tried and tried and tried, and I couldn't pray on my knees. Mm-hmm. I just what I I for whatever reason there was resistance, and I couldn't do it. And in my in his wisdom, my sponsor said, "Try throwing your keys under your bed at night." Because you'll be willing to do that. And then in the mornings when you have to get on your knees to get your keys out from underneath your bed, you'll remember it's time to pray. And, sh- <laughs> and sure enough, yeah. I learned how to pray on my knees by throwing my keys under my bed, which is completely unconnected uncon- to it. But I was willing to take that action because it was, for whatever reason, throwing my keys under my bed didn't seem like a big deal. Mm-hmm. And But then as I did it, then sure enough, I was praying on my knees. And then all of a sudden I realized intuitively why my sponsor was I, I couldn't i can't give you the scientific reasons why i was praying on my knees was better than not praying on my knees uh-huh. i just knew in my gut it really was yeah and then um that's and i think that's one of the ways that i look at doing kind of a micro change in order to create a long-term change mm-hmm. because it bypasses shame and I think shame is the thing that gets in the way of us making some of those and even knowing what purpose is. I don't think you can talk about purpose without talking about shame because I think the reason we don't know purpose is because we, we're so stuck in shame. So that would make sense. Yeah. I mean, I really love that idea. I'm like uh, looking for like, like the micro changes and yeah, something about that image of I, I'm, I'm getting down on my knees. There's, I'm sure there's a lot of science to it too, but I'm just fig- I'm intuitively zeroing in on just the embodied experience of it or there's something really meaningful to like taking a particular posture in this case it's like this posture of humility this posture of willingness uh or i'm noticing in the way you tell that story like the there's this character trait i'm i'm willing to do what i'm what i'm recommended i'm willing to do outlandish things i'm willing to do whatever it takes uh you know that makes me think of you know in in the new testament story you know blind bartimaeus he's this you know blind beggar who hears that jesus is coming and he knows that there can be healing there and so he makes this huge ruckus i imagine he makes a complete fool of himself like being really loud drawing all of this attention and everybody's being like shush bartimaeus shush uh don't you're you're you're, you're too loud you're you're making us uncomfortable and and he opts to be like i don't care i want to see i want this healing so i'm going to do whatever foolish thing it takes to change my life or to invite the change. And so, yes, you know, shouting at crowds, throwing keys under the bed. <laughs> I guess there's, 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 there's a thing for all of us to do that will feel kind of foolish maybe, but might actually be the seed of that wonderful change. I always use the Elijah Nahum story, oh. story as, you know, if you, it, so this, there was this general, there was a conquering general and he heard there was a, and he contracted leprosy and he heard there was a, this prophet in Israel that might be able to heal him. So he went to Elijah and I think if I remember the story, right, Elijah didn't even go out to meet him. He sent his servant out to see him and said, he says that you should go bathe yourself in the the Jordan river seven times. And Naaman is furious. One that Elijah didn't even bother to come out and see him himself, you know, respect who he, you know, who he was. And two, he said, we have the Tigris and Euphrates. They're much better rivers than the Jordan. Why would I want to go? And it took some of his, trusted advisors saying to him if he'd asked you to go win a war you would have happily done it but you're not willing to go do this humble thing and 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 then he went and he dunked himself in the river seven times and he was cured i think it's a wonderful story of the same type of thing and i was just telling that story to a client yesterday and 
I said, I'm going to ask you to, I, I said, I'm not Elijah. So here's your, I said, <laughs> I, said I, 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 you need to know that I'm not Elijah, but I'm going to ask you to do something. And I asked him to go to build a bear with his wife. I said, ask your wife to take some time off work. You take some time off work. This is the thing to do without your kids. Go to build a bear and make a bear that will be representative of this and see how, the, and, and again, it's crazy stuff that we sometimes ask that becomes representative for people and it it may or may not make a difference but the willingness to do it is something that is going to speak volumes for this guy in terms of his own stuff Mm -hmm. yeah i don't think i'd ever asked in my in all my time you know the six seven years i've been doing this i don't i think it's the first time i asked a client go to build a bear (laughs) so um but i want our time to go to transcend the the one hour they have with me in in my room so Mm -hmm. that they're yeah yeah and these embodied actions and these rituals and these symbols they they carry a lot of meaning they do so build a bear i had not thought of that one but now uh now i'll uh (laughs) all my clients beware you might be seeing (laughs) (laughs) you might be seeing bears coming up soon so yeah i i really appreciate this and um i think we'll we'll have to, to 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 wrap this portion of this discussion there um but yeah, thanks for sharing some thoughts on this uh, this transition from like, like like an early recovery into a later recovery, and and like we said, like transitioning from I'm trying to stop a bad thing to I'm learning how to live in a good, loving, connected way. Um, that's really essential. Uh, if a if a listener wanted to reach out to you for more ideas, or if someone wanted to try to work with you in in, in Vancouver, Vancouver, Washington, uh, where are you on the webs? So you can find me at gracefallcounseling.com. And it's not graceful, it's gracefall. Like fall from grace. <laughs> so or fall into grace. Fall into grace. Okay. That's that's better. That's nice. <laughs> um, it can be either depending on where you're at in the process. So um, and then if you want to reach me, it's Stephen G with and Stephen is spelled with a PH. So it's Stephen, not Stefan. It's but Stephen with a ph g at gracefall.org so those are the two ways you can reach out to me all right cool we'll have that in the liner notes um you can reach me at uh reese spelled r-h-y-s at new pattern counseling uh you can also look up uh and learn how to support the podcast at uh, patreon.com slash outer circle and you can look up our clinic at newpatterncounseling.com. And we're on Apple and Spotify and YouTube and all those places. So thanks for having me, man. This yeah, thank you for coming. And we'll definitely have to do this again. There, there's a lot of good ideas going on. It's an easy conversation, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you.